Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder. You know, we're going to be talking about the rocket ship that he's building. We're going to be talking about uh, building, scaling, financing, and all of the good stuff that we like to hear. Uh, obviously, you know, they have uh, tons of employees, so we're going to be learning quite a bit there, too, on hiring, on how to go about creating culture, how to think about pivoting the business. I mean, it took them a couple of business models to really, you know, hit it on the nail. Uh, and, and obviously talking about perseverance. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jan Arens. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally born and raised in Sri Lanka. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Life growing up on a, on a small island was peaceful, cut off from the rest of the world. Uh, I had, I think, a very... Uh, happy childhood. And then in Sri Lanka, there was a civil war, which got pretty intense. And when I was a teenager, it became unsafe for a young man to be going around. And I knew that I had to leave the country. And that's what happened. I ended up at the age of 20, heading from the extreme heat of Sri Lanka to one of the coldest places in North America, in New Brunswick, Canada, to start a degree in computer science back in 1990. How was that for you? Because, I mean, it was a different culture, different region, obviously different weather, but, you know, kind of like um, exploring, you know, there was a more outside of Sri Lanka, a world outside, right? So how was that for you too? Because I'm sure that that helped you with really understanding how to deal with uncertainty. To be honest, it was super exciting. Uh, it didn't matter where I ended up. Uh, I was ready to leave home at that point for many different reasons, including the the uncertain future. I was just excited to to leave, start a new life, and it really didn't matter ultimately where I ended up, but certainly uh, Canada is a beautiful country, uh, lots of great experiences, ended up spending some time in Toronto as well, working there before I decided that the University of New Brunswick was not quite the, uh, the college experience that I was looking for, and I ended up transferring to the University of Texas in, in Austin. Uh, in a few years later. Now, for you studying computer science, you know, out of all things, why computer science? Why computer science? I think I was good in math and as a as a default option, it was at that time uh perceived to be a good option from a career standpoint from uh getting a job so on and so forth. I later realized that it was really not my calling, but I'm glad that I did it. Uh, I was pretty decent at it. I was never going to be a brilliant programmer. I was not into it, but I was good enough uh, for it to 
helped me get a really strong technical foundation that I've used ever since then. So let's talk about then, you know, graduating there from Austin. And then essentially you just say, took different roles in different companies. But one thing that uh, is a very important thing to highlight here is that during that um, during that experience, during these different roles that you took, you know, from the 90s all the way until, you know, right before, you know, making the jump to becoming an entrepreneur, there was an interesting transition that happened from the technical side to really hitting it on the business side. How was that transition for you? Because typically the uh, people that are more on the technical side find that transition to be not easy. Yeah, I think for me, it was pretty easy. Uh, so I started my professional career working as a developer for about two and a half years for a product company. And I think within about six months, it became pretty clear to me that this was absolutely not my my calling. Uh, being stuck in a cubicle, churning out code, uh, and and not being close to the business problem, which, by the way, I did not know at that time. I didn't know what that meant. But later on, looking back, I knew that I always wanted to be close to the business problem, to the business, to end users, so on and so forth. And I've somewhat reflected uh, recently as well as to maybe I should have been a product manager, but I just wanted to be on the business side. I wanted to be customer facing. And so from a very early uh, stage in my professional career, I knew that this was not something that I wanted to do. And and then I found a, a really nice way to transition by joining this consulting company called Cambridge Technology Partners. In the in the late 90s, they were one of the premier top consulting companies out there. And and you got a, a chance to be to use your technical background and and do a lot of the business stuff to be a business analyst, a project manager, so on and so forth. And that's what I did for four years after that. Now, the most immediate step before really going at it as an entrepreneur, that was working for a couple of years at NetSuite. So what would you say were the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to get going with Siligo? Because you knew that eventually you would start a company. So I'm wondering, like, what would you say took you, you know, so long, you know, when it comes to your professional career from the 90s all the way up to 2011 to say, hey, it's, it's, it's time to do this? Yeah, it's it's not like I thought I was going to start a company early in my 20s, just to be clear. I was happy having a good time in my 20s, having tons of fun. But I think when I started to approach maybe that 30-year mark, right, you, you start to reflect on, on life and, and you start to ask yourself, like, where is this going? What do I want to be? Am I going to make something of my life? And it's only at that point that I decided, I think I want to, or I, I think it was almost like I need to start something, even if it's small. And and then, of course, I went through this ridiculous process of trying to figure out uh, what's what's a great business idea and came up with some like terrible, god-awful uh, ideas. and. And so I kind of parked my dreams for a while until I got to this company called NetSuite. And that's when I had this idea of 
uh, starting something similar to what Sligo ended up being. So then let's talk about Sligo. At what point does the idea come knocking? And tell us about, make us insiders, make us insiders there to really understand what was that journey like from the idea coming to you, to you giving the notice and really leaping into the unknown. Yeah, so so what happened was, uh, let's go all the way back to 2003. Uh, I joined this small startup called NetSuite, which was, I think, 180 people at that time. And it was one of the first ever SaaS companies. And pretty much everyone in the industry that I knew couldn't even spell SaaS at that time. And I joined this company, and within about three months, I came to the realization that uh, it's one of those pivotal aha moments that, oh my gosh, I think SaaS could be the future. I think I can see this model working. And, and by no means did I really predict that it would be what it is today. But I had a really strong sense that this is, this is going to be big, this model. And then uh, in my role at, at NetSuite, I was responsible uh, as a product manager to uh, run their integration stack, to, to build their APIs out. And that then made me think about, well, who's going to consume these APIs? How is the world of SaaS, business applications in the cloud, how are they going to communicate? Again, back, this is 20 some years back, right? How are they going to communicate with the typical on-prem apps, the databases of, of that era? Uh, how is this data going to move around? And, and so that got me thinking in terms of, should there be a cloud-based integration type uh, platform? And that's ultimately what gave birth to the idea of, of Saligo. Now, I took a different route to get there by first starting a consulting company. But uh, I think somewhere in, towards the end of 2003, my first year at NetSuite, that's, that's when I realized that uh, this is something that I think could be, could be big if the SaaS model were to take off. So I know that Saligo took a couple of business models to really you know, hit it, you know, the nail on the head. Walk us through what were those attempts that you guys took and, and what ended up being Siligo today when it comes to business model and how you guys are making money. True. So first off, uh, I ended up ultimately quitting NetSuite and starting a consulting company um, where we did uh, predominantly business process consulting uh, around the, the back office, uh, doing implementations around Salesforce, NetSuite, and, and a number of other apps. And in the midst of that, we ended up doing a fair bit of integration work as well. And we, we built that company to about close to 100 people. Uh, we're pretty successful. And then we decided, um, my co-founder and myself, that the time is right to go build the SaaS product, the, the Siligo that I dreamed up uh, way back in 2003. And so in 2011, we we shut down the consulting company, started the SaaS company, and I would say that was the first phase. From 2011 through 2015, we we built our IP. We got to about 
four million, I think, in uh, in ARR. Uh, did relatively well, uh, all bootstrapped, and then decided that the product that we built was not the right product. Uh, I won't get into all the details, but uh, it was pretty clear that the world of SaaS was changing uh, fast. Uh, the The product that we wanted to build uh, was not something that we wanted to kind of augment the existing platform. Instead, we we made this radical decision. I still remember discussing, having intense debates about this, uh, to go build a new product, uh, a next generation integration platform. And that is what we ended up doing. I ended up raising our series A round on the last day of 2015 and started the year 2016 with uh, a very nascent platform, which was admittedly half-baked at that uh, point, uh, and with uh, Series A funding. So that was like the, the first phase, I would say. So, so I guess in, in, in that sense, you know, walk us through what the next phases uh, have been and, and what has led you to be able to unlock the 82 million that you've ended up, uh, ended up raising to, no? to get to that point. Yeah, so the, the next phase was, I would say, roughly from about 2016 to 2019-ish, maybe uh, the start of 2020, where we had uh, just a great reputation in solving specific uh, automations, uh, such as order to cash for companies selling tangible goods, or uh, the the whole RevOps, a quote to cash for, let's say, software companies or professional services companies. So really being able to understand those business processes, all the, the typical applications that, that touch that. For example, if it's a quote to cash, there could be a CPQ, a subscription billing application, uh, uh, a CRM, an ERP, so on and so forth, right? So... We got really good. We went really deep into those business processes and earned uh, a really good reputation for companies trying to solve that. But as you can imagine, we built an integration platform that ultimately can automate any type of use case, any type of business process. And we, we realized that we were going too deep in one area, and then of course you get stereotyped as a result, right? Because then the the world outside, they think, okay, well, this company is really good if you want to solve this problem, uh, but if you want to have a more holistic uh, approach to solving all the automation needs of the enterprise, then we, we got to go use something else, even though we could do it, uh, but it was not proven. So there, in uh, was the, the problem, and that started this current phase of the company where we, we really focused on the breadth of usage, on the, the platform being a world-class platform, a next-generation platform, where you can walk into a company of any size and say, we can automate any type of business process that you have by connecting these various apps together, various data sources, trading partners, your supply chain, so on and so forth. And that's the, the phase that we're currently in. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So so then in this phase too, I mean, where you guys are thinking about the way that you guys have gone about the um, the hiring too, uh, I mean, you have quite a fair amount of employees. So how many employees do you have today and how have you gone about creating culture? Yeah, so we have about 700 plus employees, uh, uh, predominantly in North America. And then we have an offshore dev center in India, but we also have a presence in the Netherlands, in Australia, in the Philippines, so on and so forth. So we're truly global. So yeah, hiring is, I think, the area that I think is arguably the most important uh, when scaling a company. Certainly there have been lots of lessons learned uh, on my side and through throughout the company in terms of how do you go build the best possible team? Do you have the funding? Are you taking shortcuts? Uh, as they say, right, sometimes you get what you pay for. Uh, wh when do you want to break the, the bank? Arguably, if I were to, there are only a few things that I would uh, redo in, in my journey, even though it took multiple phases to, to get to where we are. Arguably, one of the things that I would change is maybe if I, knew what I know today back then, five, 10 years back, in terms of how I went about acquiring talent, um, the investments that I needed to make, that's one area that I think I would, I would change because I, I, I cannot stress the importance of getting the right people in the right roles. What about having different locations? You know, how does the culture vary from one location to the other? Yeah, I think we've been really lucky or arguably we've done a good job. Uh, it, there is, uh, we have a very strong culture and it means something to be a Saligan. Uh, for the longest time, it was a little bit nebulous and hard to describe. And I think then we did a really good job in maybe five years back in 
in documenting this in, in our values as well, which is something that we use extensively today. So the, the example that I would give you is we first started uh, an offshore team in India. And it's just amazing to see uh, how the culture in India, while slightly different from the culture in, uh, here in North America for, for obvious reasons, has still held on to the key tenets of how we operate here. Uh, it's hard to describe, but it's something that happened organically. It was not forced on these employees. It was just the, the close collaboration that we had between the, the teams. Yeah, and, and again, we started really small. We started with like, I think, five people in India, and then we grew that team. And some of the, the first hires we made back then are now senior leaders, right? So they've grown up with us and they've been able to instill that same culture. That's just one example. It's the same in Europe, same in Australia, and the same in the Philippines. So obviously vision is something that would get uh, people excited, would get silicons to uh, be excited about the future that they're living into as well, uh, investors to come on board, and then also customers, you know, too. So when it comes to vision, Jan, let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Siligo is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah. So we do have a very ambitious vision for a company of our size. If I were to say, let's fast forward three years from now, Siliga is going to be used by an extensive number of companies, not only to solve their integration needs in connecting business applications together, but we want to use our stronghold in integration to become a pure play automation platform. And by that, I mean, there are many ways to automate business processes. There could be uh, human-centric workflows where you are, uh, a, a given workflow is stopping until a human comes in and makes a decision before it, it goes back and starts executing. These are all areas that we're working on. Process mining is another area that we're working on to be able to really look at business processes and understand how can you optimize that business process? What are some of the weak spots in that business process? So going from a, a more integration-centric automation company to a true automation company is the dream, the vision that we have. Uh, and we think we're going to get there in roughly about three years. And that's, I think, what certainly gets me excited every single day when I wake up, uh, my executive team, and I would say the rest of the company as well. That's amazing. Now, obviously, in this case, we're talking about the future. And and I want to talk about the past too with, uh, with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back to 2011, to that moment that uh, let's say you were thinking about doing something of your own. And let's say, you know, you had the opportunity then to um, just have a sit down with that younger Jan and giving yourself one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, uh, I think there are lots of uh, choices there. Um, 
So I think I gave you one before, which was the importance of hiring and the importance of getting the right leaders in place. Perhaps uh, another one is to uh, focus more on some of the execution parameters. We always were pretty ambitious. We, we knew where we wanted to go. Uh, but having ambition and having, let's say, a product roadmap and, and a certain destination in mind is one thing. You're here, you want to get there. How do you get there? How do you map that journey? What are the, the key, uh, what's the framework? What are some of the, uh, the, the key milestones you want to map out and be able to be execution focused? Uh, what are some of the key metrics that you're going to use to understand whether you are on, on the right path? And this all sounds pretty obvious, but if you, if you really want to master this, uh, it requires a fair bit of discipline uh, and, and you got to have the right tooling and the, the right framework, I would say, to be able to excel in execution. And, and, and certainly this is not limited to going back to 2011. It's the case even today. Of course, we know a lot more. I'm surrounded by senior leaders who've been there, done that. But if I knew what I know today, back then, I think the way we executed um, arguably would have been much more disciplined and, and perhaps the end result might have been different as well. And also you've uh, raised money from some, you know, really fantastic investors too. I mean, when you're thinking about uh, strategy, you know, uh, especially the strategy that you will be receiving and where it's discussed at a board level. I mean, where you have people like Gomers, TVC, uh, Blossom, you know, Newspring and so forth. How, how does it work when, when you're able to masterfully have the strategy that comes from the board and being executed, you know, perfectly by management. How how does that the uh, alignment and and that seamless, you know, uh, uh, synchronization between both aspects? You know, how that what does that look like? Yeah. So first off, the the strategy is not coming from the board. And if the board were here in front of me, uh, I would say exactly the same thing. The strategy, a hundred percent, has always come from us. And I think that's the way it should be. Uh, the board has a role to, right, they've got certain responsibilities to ensure that we're doing things the right way. Um, that's been the dynamics. I think I've, uh, I've been fortunate, and, and part of it is because we, we set out to accomplish this, is to find uh, investors and ultimately a board that... Uh, where uh, that believes in the mission. That's, I think, arguably the most important thing. As you know, certain investors uh, might be looking for an exit in X number of years, and they don't really care too much about ultimately what this company is trying to do. It's, it's more about the numbers. Uh, the investors we have truly believe in the mission. And then uh, arguably the, the other really important factor is the dynamics between the various different board members and the firms 
supporting us, I think has just been really, really good. So I'm, I'm happy to say, uh, having been uh, a funded company now, I think this is our eighth year. Uh, I've had just an excellent board to work with. Not to say that every interaction is um, everyone agrees with everyone else. Certainly that shouldn't be the case. There have been some debates and in certain cases, intense debates, but I've had a very good board. That's amazing. So, Jan, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, shoot me an email, jan at saligo.com. I'm not a great social media type person, uh, but you can certainly look me up on LinkedIn as well. This is enough. Well, Jan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.